All right, well, we had moved from Ohio to Texas when I was a young lad, uh, and the middle of fifth grade. So in the middle of fifth grade, we moved from Ohio to Texas, and I was the new kid in school. And I believe I entered as the new kid in the middle of fifth grade in the middle of the day. So if you have been, ever been in a classroom when the new kid walks in, it's always, who's he? What's, he's, what's he wearing? Why is he so weird? Why, why does he smell? These are, these are thoughts that you think people are saying about you, which may or may not be true, but you're thinking they're like, go back to Ohio, kid. And you're, you're just, you're so much self-doubt is creeping in. And so there's all this insecurity. And in that moment of insecurity, you do and say something stupid. And so I was nervous and I said, oh, I'll win them over with a joke. <laughs> Nothing's worse than trying to win people over with a joke, and the joke is just bad. <laughs> and I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think I said something like about another kid. I was like, he's the victim of our game, or something, and everyone's just like. <laughs> Flash forward to, to my very first high school dance. Um, I ask, uh, ask a, a, a woman uh, a year ahead of me to go to the dance. She goes, um, and you know she looks, she looks, you know, great. She's got the dress. She also did her hair up like you do at these high school dance is. And she, in my insecurity and my nervousness of wondering, does she like me or not? I said something stupid. And so <laughs> I was trying to say something like, oh, your hair looks great. It looks awesome. And give her the compliment. But what came out was, oh, your hair looks, it looks like Medusa. Oh. And she, I could see her go like, but I was like, no, 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 like, like steaks. Like they're just like really cool curls. <laughs> and she walks away. I don't see her the rest of the night. She was also in our youth group. She didn't talk to me the rest of our <laughs> time at church. Uh, moving forward to the very first time I'm a pastor. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm just telling you all my most embarrassing stories. So if online you want to put your most embarrassing stories in the, in the chat, go for it. Um, I, my very first time as, as a pastor um, and... In my insecurity, <laughs> I said something stupid. You can, ex you can imagine this. Um, so I, we were at a church in North Carolina, and it was my first time ever leading communion. Um, and so as you do with communion, uh, you go, this is the body of Christ given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, at that church, our practice was that we, as the pastors, would, would lead by example. And so we would take the communion first. And so then you break off the bread, which this is pre-COVID, uh, so we don't have everything, nice little neat things. It was homemade bread. It was delicious. It was, it was great, which is awesome. And so me, as the first time ever doing this, I, 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 I'm having all the thoughts in my head going like, do they know this is my first time ever leading communion? Like, do they know I don't know really what I'm doing? And just so nervous. I just take off a piece of bread as if I've been stuck in a cave for two years. <laughs> and I just like rip it off and I'm like. <laughs> Which is fine. 
fine if you're hungry, uh, which is really, really inconvenient when you're trying to lead because it's not just the bread that happens. So then I'm like, <laughs> it was like extra chewy. So I was like, and I started really nervous. Everyone's watching me. Why did I take such a big bite? And so, so then I was like, in my, in my insecurity, I did something stupid. I put the bread in, the, in my cheek. I was like, Oof. So I'm like a baseball player, like dipping. And I'm like, <laughs> This is, the body, this is the blood of Christ. So I had to keep going. <laughs> Shed for you. And I was feeling so bad. I'm like, oh my gosh. I have the body of Christ in my cheek. This is, <laughs> this is not okay. This is so sacrilegious. This is my first communion. By the way, this story is now being told to every seminary student. And later, I told my, one of my professors. They're like, what not to do? Uh, <laughs> So I'm glad they'll be able to you know, impact the next generation. And so then I just was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? But I was like, I can't keep doing this. So I said, I'm just going to swallow it. And so I just take this giant piece of bread and I swallow it. And I felt it scraping down my throat. I was just like, <laughs> do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> uh, Insecurity breeds stupidity, is my thesis for today's sermon. Insecurity breeds stupidity, uh, but not, not, not just stupidity. It breeds fear. It, brings, it breeds anxiety and sometimes suffocating panic, right, when we are that insecure. Now, this is not all for everyone who's ever st struggled with in, uh, anxiety or panic attacks. This is not the same. But when you do have that such insecurity, this is what happens because of that. When we are unsure, when we don't feel safe, when we are worried, we do and say stupid things. We do and we become people we wouldn't even recognize in those times. Today, we're going to talk about insecurity and the love of God. And so here's the pathway we're going to do with that. We're going to talk about stupidity, theology, and security. I'm sorry it doesn't alliterate. I hope you'll forgive me for that. But stupidity, theology, and security. So stupidity. No, there are no stupid people. There are just stupid questions. Right? We're, we're all in agreement on this. My wife stopped. No. <laughs> um, no, obviously being sarcastic here. But there are some very insecure secure people in this passage. Insecurity is an all-time high in John 10 right here. The, the passage begins in verse 22, and it talks about this feast of dedication. Does anyone know the feast of dedication? A few of y'all? So this feast of dedication uh, is one of those feasts that you won't really read about in the Old Testament because it, it was never prescribed in the Old Testament. It, it was a feast that came about in between the Old and the New Testament in this intertestamental period. And so around 167 B.C., the Syrians take over here, and you have Antiochus Epiphanes, and people pronounce it different ways. We'll go with that. Antiochus Epiphanes takes over, and he is an evil, evil dude. He doesn't only just come in and, 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 and destroy Jerusalem. He comes in, and he wants, to, he wants to humiliate the Jewish people. And so he comes into their temple, and he pollutes it. He doesn't just destroy it or doesn't just let people live there. He pollutes it and he makes sacrifices to pagan gods in the temple. He wants, he wants, to, he wants to insult them and humiliate them. 
And so in this moment, then the Jews start gathering people into guerrilla warfare. And they start, they start making their attacks. And finally, they grew strong enough to overthrow their oppressor uh, through, under a guy named Judas Maccabees, whose nickname was Judas the Hammer. Now, that's a good nickname, <laughs> Judas the Hammer. Now, it's thought maybe it's because he used the hammer to wield as a weapon, like Thor. Maybe that's where we're getting Thor idea. I don't know. But they recaptured the temple, and then they reconsecrated it in 164 B.C., and in this reconsecration um, moment, they, they had this, this ceremony. And it's a ceremony that is still celebrated today in the Jewish culture. And it happens around December. Do you know what that is? Hanukkah, some of y'all said. Hanukkah. And so the Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights, because light shone upon the people at that time when, it, when they didn't think there was any hope at all when it was so dark that light shone that they could celebrate, that they could worship the true God at that time. And so they celebrated this feast, Hanukkah, or this, fe this festival of dedication. And during this feast, there was, the, there was these great messianic dreams that would happen, including the desire for the Messiah to take over and overthrow Rome and their oppressors. And so they are the Jewish people here are hoping and looking for a Messiah who could wield political power. They're looking for someone who could champion their cause, who could give them the respect that they deserve. They're looking for someone who could own the libs, right? <laughs> this is put in our day, ways that you try to find someone who could, who could be your advocate, who could fight for you, right? And in walks Jesus. And he's nothing like they expected. He's not their bulldog. He, he's a champion, but in a way that they didn't think about. He's the champion of the least in society. And so they ask him this question in verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And now it's not a question that they're asking in good faith. They don't actually want to know if he's the Messiah. They're setting him up and saying, tell us so that we may murder you. And we know that's the truth because when he does give the answer, immediately, immediately, they pick up stones to throw at him. Seems like a rough way to respond to someone's <laughs> question here. But verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these good works do you stone me? Oh, I just love it. <laughs> Jesus is trying to talk rationally to very irrational people. He's trying to say, which act was it that necessitates a rock to my face? Was it when I healed the 5,000? Was it when I, when I cast out a demon? Maybe it was when I, when, I, when I restored sight to the blind man. Is that why you're trying to murder me? Like, it doesn't make sense. There is something inconsistent or incongruent with a religion that looks down on acts of mercy, that says there's something wrong with this. But because the Jewish leaders were worried for themselves, in their insecurity, they were blinded to who Jesus really is. In their insecurity, they were blinded to who Jesus really is. And so today, some of you may have been charged with caring too much for the poor and not enough about saving souls. Ever been charged for that? Maybe you've been charged for caring too much about being anti-racist 
and not enough about your doctrine. Ever been charged for that? And we might respond like, am I missing something here? Do you have to pick one or the other? Like, or if you want to get really post-2020, you may be labeled as having that woke drift. And you've drifted right away from Jesus into the loving arms of Karl Marx. (laughs) We're getting too particular here. So similarly, which works are we talking about? The marches claiming Black Lives Matter? The seasons of lament over crimes against our Asian brothers and sisters? Like, how does a desire to dismantle systems of oppression make one anti-gospel? Please, tell us. Orthodoxy, right thinking, should lead to orthopraxy, right practices. It should happen that way. The right thinking should lead to care for, to have the right practices. But I think many times, there's many of us now are starting to say, these wrong practices have, have led us to wonder if, if some have ever had the right thinking in the first place. But you see, insecurity breeds stupidity. People do and say things they regret when they're insecure, like on the very first day of class, trying to make a joke that just doesn't go over well, and no one laughs. Same way that someone might storm the Capitol in the name of Jesus if they're worried they're losing their foothold of control. And it's in the times of greatest insecurity that we need to ask the deepest questions of the universe. Let's move from stupidity to theology. And theology isn't like this dead or boring questions of like, I wonder about this doctrine or not. Some of the deepest questions of theology you can find in the Psalms. Where are you, O God? There's a good theological question. Where are you, O God? The wicked are prospering. Where are you? And not just where are you, but who are you? Who, what is, who is God? And weirdly enough, as the people are forming a lynch mob to kill Jesus, he realizes that their greatest need right now is Theology 101. For they respond in verse 33, We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, some of y'all may have heard someone say along the way, that Jesus doesn't actually claim to be God. And you could point to this verse and go, that seems to be contradictory because they're saying we are going to stone you because you do claim to be God. Jesus is very clear about that in this verse. In a couple of verses uh, before this, in verse 25, he says, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. And in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, if Jesus didn't believe that he was actually God, this would be the moment for him to come clean. As they're picking up their stones, like you might pick a stone to skip across the water, weighing it, going, which one will cause the greatest harm? Which one will take his eye socket out? That's the moment for Jesus to come forward and come clean and say, okay, I was joking. I'm not the God. I'm not the Messiah. But he doesn't do that. He does the weirdest thing possible. When he's about to be killed, he says, let's have a Bible study. I don't know if it's going to work in every situation. So that's like what you should do, but this is what Jesus does. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? Now, you may have lost Jesus here as I did and many others have done. What? 
Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 82, 6, where God says, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Now, anyone calling themselves a god is a reason for concern, right? <laughs> anyone calling themselves a uh, God, you start to feel a little bit anxious around them. You're like, it's like when, when, when Eminem says, I'm beginning to feel like a rap god, rap god. You're like, all right, Eminem, that's you, man. That's your thing. I'm going to stand over here, and when the lightning bolt strikes you, I'm going to make sure the ricochet doesn't get any part of me. I'm not listening to that song again. That was, it, 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 was, it was good, but it, no more, right? There's, there's like a distance, because this feels like Theology 101, Anyone claiming to be God seems to be wrong. That seems to be sacrilegious. There is one God. In fact, in the Old Testament, God's people would recite the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. So how many gods are there? One. That is clear from the scriptures. This is basic intro level stuff. But then what Jesus does and what the psalmist does makes this very confusing. How can they say that they are gods? Now, what's happening here, the psalmist is referring to the judges of Israel, that these judges are gods, are expressions of gods, uh, God expression to exercise his righteousness and his judgment for his people right there. They were expressions of God's righteousness on earth. And so Jesus' point here is if your own word your Old Testament is calling mere mortals gods, then what's the big deal right now? Now, he's not saying, what's the big deal? Because I'm a mere mortal as well. That's not his argument. Jesus is saying, what's the big deal? This is a, this is a, a how much more argument. If these judges who are mere mortals can be called gods, how much more can I, being the son of God, who the father has set apart as his very own, how, how much easier is it for me to say that? And so Jesus doesn't make things easier on himself. He both claims that there is one God, but then he says, I and the Father are one. And our brains explode. <laughs> and now we've moved from theology 101 to the 400, 500 level class. Is there one God? Yes. Is there a Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Yes. There is one God in three persons. How does that work? Oh, that's not this sermon. <laughs> <laughs> That's not today's sermon. <laughs> but this is where anytime you try to explain that and give an imagery of that, that's when you get into heresy. It's so hard for us to explain this. But one God, three persons, there is a dance. It's one dance between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're in unison. One dance, three people dancing together. Is that, that's my biggest, best analogy. Malcolm will tell me later if there's some heresy involved in that. Okay, cool. Well, let's move from stupidity <laughs> to theology and now to security. Have you ever wondered this? And this is, take a moment. Have you ever wondered this question? Can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Usually when that question is asked to me, it's not a theological one. Usually there is a, there's something behind it. And so when someone does ask me that question, I have to ask, why do you ask? Because there is something behind the question, and usually it's followed by, I've done some really, really terrible things. 
How could he ever love me? Or, I just feel bad all the time. How could God love this? When he sees, when he sees right through the, the, what I present to the world, and he sees the real me, how could he love me? And sure, I, I got his grace once, but I've, I've squandered that grace. I've said, yes, I'll take your forgiveness, and then I've just, I've just gone on and done the sin over and over and over again. How could he ever love me again? And this is compounded by the fact that every structure we interact with is sinful. Every relationship contains a temptation. Every economic decision, some kind of exploitation. Where and how can anyone be saved? How can I keep my salvation when all I do is see all the ways that I failed my Savior? And I'll tell you, I'm convinced that most, if not all, Christians struggle with this question. If not theologically, functionally, does God still love me? Am I still in his graces? Can I lose my salvation? And it's in these moments of great doubt and insecurity that we do need good, good theology. We need God to weigh in on this. If my salvation is in my hands, then yep, we have a lot, of, lot to fear. We have a lot to worry about. We have a lot to be anxious about. But here's the heart of this passage. In verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Oh, do you hear the hope that's in this passage? Like, I give them eternal life. They don't give it to themselves. And they shall never perish. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. Are you still unsure? Let me say it again. No one will snatch you out of my hands. You could use the word pluck. No one will pluck you out of my hands. And because I and the Father are one, it's not that you're just in my hands, Jesus' hands. You're in the Father's hands too. And so you are you are protected by the Father and the Son who are protecting you so that no one can pluck you out of their hands. Not you, no one, no thief, no enemy, no wolf, not even the devil himself. Not even not even a series of bad decisions. Nothing can take you out of the grip of grace. Do we believe that? So, can you lose your salvation? Absolutely not. Some of you guys may have heard Once saved, always saved. Okay, I I think I prefer when saved, always saved. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. When you are saved, when you're in his hands, nothing can pluck you from that. R.C. Sproul says it this way, if you have it, you will never lose it. But if you lose it, you never had it. And he's trying to answer the question, then what happens to those who may fall away from faith? What about them? Well, I just want to say this to you. We can't know anyone's heart fully. I can't look into anyone's heart and see that they were alive. And so we just have to hope and trust that if someone did fall away, I hope and pray that this is not, this is a mere chapter in their story and not the whole book. And you may be thinking of someone right now and you're worried for them. 
And I pray that this is just a mere chapter in their story, a dark time in their story, that they do come back. We don't know. We can't see into their hearts. But no one can pry God's fingers off of you. If It's not that you won't have trouble in life if you're in God's hands. That's not what we're saying here. But you will be saved no matter what may come against you. That's what he's saying here. That our ultimate security rests not in our power, but in the good shepherd's power. That our ultimate security is in his hands. And so some, someone might say, well, aren't you worried that teaching this might give someone license to just go sin like crazy? Like if you've got such fire insurance that you can just go off and go whatever. No, I'm not. What I'm more worried about is how many Christians doubt the love of Christ? How many of us doubt that we are truly secure in his hands is what I'm worried about. And when I see so many of us, because of that doubt, we wonder, did we just blow our salvation? And in that moment that we've sinned, we say, I give up. I can't ever, I can't ever run this faith anymore. That's what I'm worried about. Because when we do have that security of Christ, then we know that we can struggle, we can fight, and when we fail, we'll fall down, but we'll keep going because we know our ultimate destination hasn't been thwarted. That we are still in his hands always. And so there's no sin too great for God. There's no question too big or amount of power or loss of power too big. And so I just want to say, do you see how secure you are in Christ? There's a guy named Voltaire who has this great quote. He says, if God made us in his image, we have returned the favor. And what he's saying by that is this. We like to project on God who we are. And so because we're insecure, because we're unsure of how stable this relationship is, we think God is thinking that way about us. And we think God is saying, maybe I love you, maybe I don't. And that's not at all what's happening here. The text tells us very clearly with this good theology that nothing will come between God and you. And it takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to believe that in the darkest of days that that I only stand in his presence because of what Jesus has done for me. It, It takes faith to believe that what Jesus has done is good enough. And that's what we need to keep doing is keep believing that because if insecurity breeds stupidity, security will breed wisdom and joy and peace. That when you know how loved and cared for you are, that beautiful truth and how locked into God's hands you are, there is joy and there is peace and there is wisdom involved there. Like when you see you're secure, you don't need to steal that security from someone else. When you see how secure you are, you don't need to strive to get that peace every single day because you've got that peace. In short, as Paul would say to the Colossian believers, you died, that old you is dead, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I just want to say, make that our daily prayer. Hide me in Christ, O God. Hide me inside of Christ, O Lord. May he cover me so that when God sees me, he sees the works of Jesus. Oh, That's my prayer. And so then the question is, how do you get hidden in Christ? How do you find yourself in the hands of that father? It's very simple. Romans 10.9 tells us, Jesus 
If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. And so I ask you this. Have you ever made that decision? Have you ever made that decision and declared that Jesus is Lord? Have you ever believed that God raised him from the dead? If you've never made that decision, never declared it, never really truly believed it, then we're going to invite you to do that today. But I would say there's probably many of you who have made that decision, who have declared that, and you're still wondering, do I still have a relationship with him? And I want to encourage you to see the security you have with the Father this morning. See the love you have with the Father, that he is, he's got you in his hands. And it's in that security that you can have peace and you can take joy from that today. He does care for me that much. He does love me that much. And that'll, that'll change the way we live this afternoon. That'll change the way we live this week. What would it be if Christians were secure? What would it be like if Christians were truly secure? Let's dream of what that would look like. And let's fall into that. Let me pray for us.